All right, so um, a couple of years ago, I was like just watching videos on YouTube. I don't even remember how I came across this video, but I watched a video that was a post of an experiment that the Washington Post put together back in 2007. And the whole point of the experiment was to answer the question, do people perceive beauty in unexpected places? Um, and for the experiment, uh, what they did is they had a man go down into the Washington, D.C. subway and play a couple of famous p pieces on his violin during people's morning commute. Um, and they wanted, the point was, they wanted to see how many people stopped to listen to what they would perceive as a typical subway performer during their rush hour time. And so um, they had this man go down in the subway, and he played for about 45 minutes. And during that time, they, they kept track and counted over 1,100 people passed this man up. Um, and they, keep, they kept track of how many people actually stopped and took some time to listen to what he was playing and performing. Um, and now this number seems low to me. It was surprising to me, maybe not to you, but only six people actually stopped to listen to him play. Um, now, granted, like I said, that was surprising for me, but maybe that number isn't surprising to you. Um, I mean, the, the reality is subway performers are nothing new, and people are usually in a bit of a hurry during their morning commutes. They're focused on work. They're not focused on anything else. But the catch with this experiment was the details about the performer and what was going on. Um, this seemingly common situation was anything but common. For one, the performer was Joshua Bell, um, and if you don't know who that is, know that he's one of the most renowned violinists in the world. Um, he regularly sells out performances, and tickets will go for over $100 a seat easily uh, for, for performances he gives. He's incredibly well-known internationally for his um, abilities with the violin. Um, so that's significant. But even the pieces that he was playing were significant. They were all pieces by Bach. And one of them, I, I was trying to find out which pieces specifically he played. In the Washington Post article, they didn't um, list them. But they said that one of the pieces he played is considered to be one of the most intricate and hardest pieces that you can play on a violin. And so what he was performing was incredible. Um, and then there was the violin that he was playing on. Um, he wasn't just playing some, like, any old violin. He was playing on a handcrafted um, Stradivarius violin from 1713. So, um, if you don't know anything about violins, that probably means nothing to you, other than it's really old. But know that that is one of the most expensive violins in the world. Um, Stradivarius violins are pretty much universally considered some of the best violins that you can play. Um, and they sell for millions of dollars, not just thousands of dollars, for millions of dollars. And the one that he was playing on was worth at least $3.5 million. Um, so, so what does all this mean? It means that over 1,000 people simply walked by and paid no attention to one of the world's greatest musicians playing one of the world's most complicated pieces on one of the world's best and most expensive instruments. They were present for, in a sense, a once-in-a-lifetime event that they totally ignored and just passed by. They paid no heed to it. The beauty of it was completely lost on them. Um, and that's probably because it was unexpected. They would expect someone like that to be playing on an instrument like that, doing a piece like that to be in a concert hall, not in a subway station. And so they just passed it by. They had no sense for the beauty that was actually being demonstrated right there. Um, and don't so many things in life like that function that way? Um, the way things are present to us affect how we respond to them. Um, the way that things are packaged, the way that they're presented to us affects how easily we're going to pay attention to them or consider them. And that was the case for the people down in the subway station. They saw a very typical, common situation, and so they paid no attention to it. Um, 
But just imagine if there had been signs and staging and lights to show that this was a significant event going on. More people would have stopped and paid attention to what was going on. And they might have actually been able to appreciate what was taking place in that morning, in that situation. Um, the way we package or present or decorate things, it matters. The way that we adorn the things in our life matters. It gives testimony to the significance of that thing that we are adorning. Um, I'm going to use that term a lot this morning, adorn. Think of it as like decorating or ornamenting or putting on display something that doesn't necessarily display itself naturally. Um, And so that's what I want you to have in mind this morning, this idea that the way that we adorn things matters. It will either commend things to people or it'll cause people to either ignore or actually reject things. Um, Now, we're going to be looking at Titus 2, 1 through 10 this morning. So if you haven't already turned there, I invite you guys to turn to Titus 2. Um, If you have the black Bibles in the pew, it's on page 998. Um, We're going to be spending a lot of time on pages 998 and 999 since that's where the book of Titus is in those Bibles. But yeah, please turn there. And um, as I'm about to read it, I want you to be paying attention to this idea of adornment that I was just talking about. So um, I'll give you guys just a moment to turn there and then I'll read it. All right. So Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. God's word says this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their owners, to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the very end of verse 10 sums up really what the point of this passage is. Paul is calling us to adorn the doctrine of God, our God and Savior, with our lives. Remember what Paul said at the very beginning of this letter in chapter 1. He's writing for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And so this is where we really get into that piece of the, the, how the faith and knowledge accords with godliness. That's what, we're gonna, that's what he's calling them to in these verses. This is a recurring theme that Paul brings up in this letter. The faith of God's elect should produce godliness in their lives. And he's emphasizing that in verses 1 through 10 here. It's meant to be the adornment to their doctrine. It shows how much they and we treasure that doctrine, how much we truly believe it, how real it actually is, whether we're not just believing falsehoods, but actually believing real, true facts. What does it say about our God if his children appear to be no different than anyone else? And that's that's really the question that, Paul is answering this morning is it it doesn't say much about God and so he calls them to adorn their doctrine with godliness with good works with character change and transformation in their lives so that is therefore my call for us this morning my proposition is this let's help one another adorn the doctrine of the savior with godliness So I'll say that again. Let's help one another adorn the doctrine of the Savior with godliness. We don't want to adorn it just like everyone else does. Um, That that doesn't show that they really truly believe the doctrine of God, which we'll get into what that is later. 
but we want to show by our lives and we want to help one another do this, show that there is something different that we believe in and it is powerful and good and right and life-changing. So as a first point, I want to start, I'm going to kind of take a step back from getting to that because I want to lay a foundation for it. I want to start with some thoughts about beauty and what beauty is. Adornment and beauty, I would argue, are inseparable ideas. We adorn things to make them more beautiful after all. And so if you want to highlight something, you want to adorn it with something that's beautiful. If you don't like something, you're going to adorn it with something that's ugly or you're just not even going to pay attention to how you adorn it. And so if we want our lives to esteem and adorn God's doctrine, then we want to do that by making our lives look beautiful. And so we need to understand what that is, what beauty is. Um, So I want us to start there first and establish what a biblical view of beauty is. So how is beauty defined in Scripture? There are a bunch of verses that we could look at. I just did a search, actually, when I was preparing my sermon, I did a search for just beauty and how many times that word shows up in Scripture or beautiful. And there are tons of occasions in which it shows up. But I wanted to just read to you guys just a couple verses that I think help communicate what the Bible teaches us and how it views beauty. So the first one I want to mention is in Psalm Psalm 50, it's verses two and six. It says this, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. And so we see this perfection of beauty is associated with God. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. And so we're seeing beauty is associated with God and also his righteousness. Proverbs 31.3 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be, to be praised. And so there's this aspect of beauty that isn't good, but we see what is good, a woman who fears the Lord. And then 1 Peter 3, verses 3, 3 and 4, um, this is one of the best verses, um, passages that I would argue communicates what a biblical understanding of beauty is. It says, do not let your adorning be external, So Peter's talking to wives here. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So notice, if if you notice just from these three verses, these three passages, notice that there's different layers to beauty that scripture acknowledges. The first layer is the superficial layer. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. It's superficial in the sense that it's referring to physical beauty. But then figuratively, it's also because there's a deeper, more important layer to beauty, which I'll get to in a second. But again, this superficial, this first layer that we saw in the Proverbs 31 verse, this is physical beauty. Uh, It's attractiveness. It's someone who is appealing to the eyes Um, that's considered beautiful in the eyes of the world. And this is a type of beauty that, like I said, in the eyes of the world, the world largely gets and understands this definition of beauty. If you're gonna read newspapers or books, when beauty is described, it's gonna be in terms of physical, physical perception, physical appeal, those types of things. So that's how the world views beauty, on a very surface, physical level. You don't have to be a Christian to know or to get that. The second layer, though, is far deeper and far more important. And it's a uniquely biblical understanding of beauty. It's beauty redefined in terms of God, not vanity. The first, first Peter 3 passage, like I said, does such a good job at describing the difference. So pay attention. I'm going to read that, that, um, those two verses again and pay attention to the difference between how it's redefined in terms of God rather than vanity. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting, off, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So what is beautiful here 
is the gentle and quiet spirit. It is character that reflects God's character. It's, it's character that resembles God. It's good and right. That's what makes it beautiful. What matters to God is not our physical appearance. What matters is our godliness, our holy character. What matters is how, we, how much we resemble him and his will for us. This is what people don't understand if they don't have scripture, if they don't look at this. Their worldview of beauty is, again, that surface level beauty, but this goes much deeper. Beauty is, ulti- beauty is ultimately rooted in God and his character, not physical traits or appearance. He is the fount from which it flows. So something is only truly beautiful as far as it resembles him or, as a, or is associated with him. And Jesus' own life demonstrated that truth to us. Think about what scripture said about his physical appearance. Um, in Isaiah 53, 2, when prophecy is foretelling about the Messiah who was to come, it said that he had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, this is talking about the superficial level, the superficial layer of beauty. In other words, Jesus wasn't handsome or good-looking in any way. According to that definition of beauty, he wasn't beautiful. But think then, in contrast, about when instances in Scripture when his true, spiritual, actual, real beauty is put on display and revealed. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration. When his true beauty and majesty was shown, it says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. That is remarkable. That is what's beautiful. Or think about John's description of him in Revelation. In Revelation 1, verses 12 through 17, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like, were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is what is remarkable and majestic and glorious. Jesus personifies the biblical definition of beauty. He changes the way we think about it. The point is not that beauty doesn't matter. As Christians, we don't want to encourage one another to fight vanity by saying that beauty isn't important. It is. We should praise and commend things that are beautiful. God does that. The point, though, is that we need to redefine it in our own minds. It isn't about physical appearance. It's about holiness. Jesus is unsurpassed in his beauty, not because of any physical attribute, but because he is God. He displays holiness and perfection perfectly, and he obeyed during his life on earth. He obeyed the Father's will in every way, humbly, submissively, like I said, perfectly. His righteousness is his beauty. Therefore, the same is true for us. The more like God we are, the more beautiful we are in the truest sense of that word. Let that redefinition change the way you adorn your lives um, and live them out. That is what Paul had in mind when he was writing this passage. That's why he's commending godliness to the people in Crete. And knowing that should cause us to wonder how we can adorn our lives in that way. That, and that brings us to my second point that I want to touch on. The answer to that, how do we adorn our lives? It, it might seem kind of strange, but the answer is sound doctrine. If you want to be holy, devote yourself to sound doctrine. It alone has the power to change the way that we live. Look, look with me at verse 1 back in Titus 2. It says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We see this term again back, we saw this in Titus 1.1, and we see it again in Titus 2.1, this idea of something being according with, 
Back in Titus 1.1, it was the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And we see here, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, this isn't a word that we use in common vernacular very much. Um, we, we might say like something according to something else, but we don't say something accords with something else. And so that might not be a term that people are as familiar with. So what that means here is that something fits with sound doctrine, in a sense. Or even more specifically, the way that you can think of it is it rises up out of sound doctrine. Think, for example, of a plant springing, springing up from a seed. The plant accords with the seed in that it comes forth from and fits with that seed. They go together and one results from the other. And they are the same kind, too. You're not going to have... For instance, an oak tree come up from an April tr- a maple tree seed. Or you're not going to have a dandelion grow out of a tulip bulb. The same is true for our doctrine and behavior. Your actions are the product of what you believe. And that is what your doctrine is. Doctrine is just a system of beliefs. So your actions, your behaviors, um, the adornment of your life, that rises up out of the doctrine, the beliefs that you hold. For instance, you're not going to lie if you believe that it is wrong. And you will lie if you think that there's nothing wrong with doing it. So our, our moral views, our moral understanding, our acknowledgement that there is a God who establishes a moral code, or there is no God, therefore we can do whatever we want, that dictates how you're going to live your life. Your behaviors are a result of the doctrine you hold. They accord with and adorn it. And they show how sound your doctrine really is. Think about it. Right doctrine will produce good fruit. And wrong doctrine will produce bad fruit. And so Titus, or Paul is commending Titus to teach them to exhibit good fruit in their lives. And the way that they do that is by holding to the sound doctrine that they've been taught. That is what Paul is getting at here. He's telling Titus to teach the Cretans what sort of life fits with and flows from sound doctrine. And they need, to, they need to know that so that they can live it out. I mean, you might think, okay, so if, if godliness is the natural overflow of sound doctrine, then why, why did they even need to be told and commanded to do these things? And the reality is, the Cretans, they were new believers. They didn't know how to walk with Christ in light of the gospel that they were told. They didn't know the, the practical implications of it. And so Titus needed to communicate and teach those things to them. And Paul was encouraging him to do so. And so that's what Titus was doing. Something we must understand is that it is not enough to say you believe something, but then live a life that completely contradicts it. If you say that humans can't fly, but then every single day you climbing up a ladder and jumping off and flapping your wings trying to fly, you're showing that you don't actually believe what you say. You do think that humans could fly, even though you say otherwise. And this is true for the Christian worldview as well. If we claim to be followers of Christ, but we don't obey any of his commandments and don't live like he lived, then we're showing that we aren't actually followers of Christ. We're showing that we're just giving lip service to Christianity. And the danger is living in a Christianized country and society, it's easy for people to think that they are Christians when they're really not, when their lives don't actually demonstrate that at all. And so that's something we have to be mindful in ourselves. Christians are saved by faith alone, but, we have, but if we have no good works, then we are showing that the faith that we claim to have probably isn't genuine. You might be able to explain biblical truths, but you don't really believe them truly in your heart. And that's what I mean when I talk about this idea of the power of sound doctrine enabling us to adorn our lives in godliness. If we want to adorn them and exhibit good works, then we need sound doctrine. That is the only kind of doctrine that will produce lives of humility and peace, and love, and self-sacrifice, like, like we're called to in Scripture. True, biblical, sound doctrine 
when it is believed, it changes people. It will change you. It will change the people in your life if they believe the gospel. And that's because of what the belief is, what, who we believe in. This sound doctrine that Paul is talking about in this passage, he doesn't go into it here. Next week, you guys will get to hear more about what that sound doctrine is. And the following verses after this passage really get into that. Um, but we don't see that necessarily outlined here. But it's important for us to know what that sound doctrine is because it undergirds, it's implied in everything that Paul is talking about here. So we need to know what that sound doctrine is. And that sound doctrine, like I've already said, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the belief that without him, we are dead and ugly in our sin. As Paul says in Romans, apart from Jesus, we cannot please God at all in any way, shape, or form. We don't even want to. So we go through this life living for ourselves and all the while, Again, apart from Jesus, we are alienating ourselves from our God and maker and judge. And when we come to the end of this life and we face him, because we all will, what do we have to say for ourselves? What do we have to say in judgment? We have nothing to say apart from Jesus. Without him, we are silent we would simply have to face God's judgment and know that we had been foolish the whole time in ignoring him and living for ourselves rather than our maker. But with Jesus, we have an entirely different narrative that we get to live out and experience. With Jesus, when he came to earth to die for our sins, we have that new narrative. He did that so that we could be reconciled to God. He came so that instead of being dead and ugly, we could be made alive and arrayed in his righteousness. Because the fact is, we cannot live righteously on our own. He lived a perfect life so that his obedience could be counted as ours. So now as Christians, we can please God. As those who believe that Jesus Christ died on our behalf, we can point to him at our judgment. So when we come to the end of this life, and again, we stand before God as our judge, we can say, I wasn't righteous, God. I know that. I acknowledge that. I sinned against you, and I lived for my own glory. I was not righteous, and I deserve your wrath. But Jesus Christ was righteous. He is holy, he is perfect, and he died so that his righteousness could count as mine. That's the gospel summed up in a sentence. We can say that to God and say, please accept his offer and sacrifice on my behalf. And you guys, the incredible thing is we already know what God's answer to that question will be. We don't have to wonder whether God's gonna be in a good mood on that day or not. He's already given us an answer about whether or not he has accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. By resurrecting him, by raising Jesus from the dead, he showed that he does accept his offering and sacrifice for those who believe. That is the hope we have. That is the gospel. That is the sound doctrine that Paul is referring to here. It's the belief that we cannot adorn ourselves in righteousness. We cannot make ourselves beautiful and pleasing to God. But Jesus has done that for us. So when we seek, when we're seeking to adorn our lives in godliness, we're just trying to live out and demonstrate what Jesus has done for us. We're not trying to save ourselves. We're not trying to make ourselves good. We do it because the work has already been done through our Savior. Our lives are slow to show that, Growth and sanctification is a slow process. But we can take heart in knowing that it is happening, for one. God has promised that. And in the eyes of God, you are holy and perfect and righteous because Jesus is and you are united with him by faith. That is our doctrine and believing that changes people. And if you don't believe that, 
I, I beg you to do that, to believe it, to trust that that might sound too good to be true, but it is true. Believe it. Don't trust in yourself, but believe in Jesus Christ. Trust him for your righteousness. Redeemer, I am so thankful to be part of a church that does believe this. I know you guys do. And I know that because I see how your lives have been transformed by these truths and realities. I see you killing sin that you once loved. You are finding joy in things that once made you anxious or discontent. You're preaching truth to yourself when all of your feelings are telling you otherwise. You're sacrificing for one another. Um, even just for example, lately, I have been so blown away by the outpouring of love that people have had for Joel and Annie during her illness. Friends, you are demonstrating the godliness that sound doctrine produces when it's believed. So continue to believe that. Don't believe the notion that godliness can be achieved through mere habit change and willpower. It's not going to happen. Someone might have the appearance of godliness for a little while if they do that, if they live that way, but it will not last when things get hard. Trials and hardship will crop up in life and it will be shown to be fake. It will be shown to be just done in personal strength, not in the strength and righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you want to experience deep and profound lasting change in your life, believe the gospel. That is what will change you. That is what has transformed and converted lost souls around the world for 2,000 years. The gospel is what has strengthened men and women and children to face persecution and even martyrdom without fear or regret. The gospel is what has brought peace to Christians when they have had things and lost everything, when they have faced the things that they hoped in and found stability and security in, when those things have been just stolen from them. You guys have experienced this in your own lives. I know that's the case. When Christians have experienced these deeply distressing, horrific things, the gospel is what has seen them through that. The same truths that have helped saints endure horror throughout history are available to you each and every day to strengthen and to comfort and to build you up. If you want to adorn your life today, Turn to Jesus and trust that he will do it. Resolve yourself to believe and to remember these, these doctrinal views. But the passage doesn't end there. Know that we know how we are enabled by sound doctrine to... Let me say that again. Now that we know how we are enabled by sound doctrine to adorn our lives... Um, we need to recognize another necessary factor that we see in this passage that must be pre present. And that is the community of faith that teaches you. So look with me at verses one through six. Let's get back to the passage. So Titus two, one through six says this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the, younger, the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So notice what Paul is saying here. Pay particular attention to his method the method in which he wants this training to happen. He wants Titus first to teach the church as a whole. We see that very clearly in the first, in the first verse. But he isn't the only one doing the teaching. Notice that. The older men and women, both in age and maturity, so when I'm talking about older, think certainly age, but I would also argue maturity as well. Um, they are called to disciple and teach the younger, less mature members of the church. It's the same as the teaching structure that Paul outlines in Ephesians 4, if you think about it. He, he says in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
To do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So notice that those apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, in a sense in the church today, elders, um, he has given them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's the saints as a whole, the church as a whole, who are called to do the ministry. It's not just the pastors or, or elders who are doing it. They're just called to equip everyone else so that everyone can be doing it. The ministry is done by the church collectively. We should all be ministering to one another. And that's exactly what we see here in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. Understand this. Your adornment, so at least the beautiful kind, your, meaning your growth and sanctification and godliness, that will come slowly and weakly if you are not planted and rooted within a community of faith that disciples, teaches, and challenges you. People applying God's word to each other's lives is the Spirit's primary context in which he likes to work and bring about change and transformation. If sound doctrine, think about it this way, if sound doctrine is the soil in which you are planted, the people who teach you are the water that you need to grow. Without them, you will wilt and die. And you might not even notice that it's happening as it's happening. So, older and more mature members of this church, do not despise those who are younger than you. Don't just watch them make poor life decisions and run headlong into sin. We, and I'm lumping lumping myself into that category because I'm younger than most of the congregation, we need help. We need your help even when we don't realize it. Your life experience affords you wisdom that that we don't likely have. Chances are you have studied God's word longer than a lot of us as well. Um, You know it more intimately. So share the truth and realities that you've learned over the years. Show that with those who are not as far along. Please teach and train the men and women who aren't as far along with you in the path of life. Help us think through what is right or wrong so that we can live godly, Christ-exalting lives. And younger church members, do not despise those who are older than you. Though it is easy to think that we're the ones that are always right, when we're young, we tend to always want to think that we're right. Um, We aren't. So first of all, just recognize that. You are not always right. In fact, we're wrong probably more often than we're right. We need help. We need guidance. And from people who aren't just like us. This is one of the things that I, like, has been such a blessing to me in going from campus ministry involvement in college where I was pretty much only surrounded by people my same age versus involvement in the church where I get to, I get to know people years, even decades older than myself. Like that has been so helpful for me in growing and recognizing how, like even just what goals to set for my life. What, like just thinking through, like how do I wrestle with different situations? Being able to see men in my life who have faced similar sin struggles that I have, but are further along in growth and victory over those things. That provides hope and encouragement when you're still battling it as a younger individual. So young men and women, look to the older saints in the church. Seek them out. Ask for counsel from people more seasoned in life. Watch them. Visit with them. Observe their lives and learn from them. And while you're at it, offer them encouragement and hope in the gospel too. Help them see their own sins just as they are helping you to see your own. So church, let's refine one another. Let's take responsibility for each other. Don't overlook the fact that this whole passage is commanding you to disciple and be discipled by others. Don't just look at these verses and say, okay, this is what I need to work on. This is what I want to change in my life. Do that. That's good. But also, don't overlook what else you're supposed to be doing what else Paul is commanding us to do. 
disciple one another, care for one another, invite others into your life. Don't guard your privacy, but allow yourself to be open and vulnerable with other people. We're called to rely on one another. So open yourself up to each other so that we might even better adorn the doctrine of Christ. Now with that, we need to finally consider what our, what our adornments should actually consist of. I've been talking a lot about like background and foundation on this passage, but we haven't actually looked at the specific details that Paul calls older men and women and younger men and women to actually live out. What are the specific adornments that, that we are to live out in our lives? And so... Um, that's what I want to turn our attention to now. So look with me. Again, we're going to read pretty much the whole passage again. Look with me at verses 2 through 10. It says this, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an, so that an opponent may be put to, to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, I do not have time to address every point that Paul makes here. I went through it, counted all of the times that he brings up a trait or behavior, and there's 27 of them in this passage. So, like, some of them, granted, are repetitive, so he says a couple of them a couple times, but there's still way more than we can address in any one sermon. Um, but I do want to point out a couple things that we do see here. First... I want to note that if you, read, if you read this passage side by side, and I actually do challenge and encourage you to do this later on, um, if you read this passage side by side, you will see that there are parallels in these verses to every single one of the qualifications outlined for elders in Titus 1. So if you take the Titus 1 elder qualifications and look at them with these verses, there's parallels for every single one of the elder qualifications. Some of the words are exactly the same words in the Greek um, that he uses. Um, some of them are synonyms, but they, they mean the same things. And then some of them are, like, there's, there's phrases that communicate and imply the same ideas that we see in the, the elder qualifications. But regardless, what I'm trying to say is they outline for all all the church members, the qualifications of the elders. There's no exceptions, not even the qualification to teach. In fact, you will notice that the command to teach in this passage is directed to the older women, interestingly enough. And I just want to say regarding that, this is a clear example in Scripture that shows that though men alone can be elders, men and women can both be very gifted in teaching, and both men and women should utilize those gifts. Just because someone isn't an elder doesn't mean that they, sh they don't have opportunities to teach. There are infinite number of informal opportunities every day that you have to teach those around you. And that's exactly what Paul is communicating here in the verses. But getting back to my point, all Christians are called to live like elders ultimately. Elders need to go, need to go ahead of the flock in these things. So, in that sense, they are called to a higher level of maturity and competency in these things. But all Christians are called to a wholehearted pursuit of godliness like the elders are. So, the list of qualifications for elders in Titus 1 is relevant to every single person here. 
you should aspire to those things, even if you don't aspire to ever be an elder, even if you know you never will be one, aspire to them. That's what Paul is telling us in Titus 2. So that's the first thing I wanted to point out. But second, I also, in addressing the specific things, I want to highlight two, in a sense, themes or categories that comprise a number of the different traits that are outlined here or behaviors that are lived out, that should be lived out by Christians. Um, So I want to put a special emphasis on first, self-control, and second, reverence for God and his will. So first, self-control. The specific word, that specific word is actually mentioned more than any of the other ones, which should tell us something of its importance and need. So notice there's a number of things that are specific to like just older men or just older women or things that should be specifically taught to the younger women. But the one thing that we see should be exhibited and taught by to, like that should be taught to and experienced by all of those different age and gender categories is self-control. It's in verses two, five, and six. Everyone in the passage is called to be self-controlled. But what exactly does that look like in the Christian life? It's worth talking about that. The idea is that we're supposed to curb our desires and passions. We aren't supposed to let them control us. That's what self-control means. So friends, our desires are not as they should be. We have to recognize that first. The things that you desire are not most of the time good or right. You always have impure desires mixed into things that might even appear to be good desires in your heart. We aren't calibrated right in a sense. That's part of our sinful nature. And because, and because of that, we feel things that we shouldn't feel. We lust after people. We feel unrighteous anger or envy. We become sad, fearful, and anxious when we fail to believe in gospel truths. When we experience those desires and feelings, we're faced with a decision to make in those moments. Are we going to take those desires and feelings captive because we recognize that they're wrong and they're based on lies? That's the one hand. Or on the other hand, are we going to let them control us and lead us into greater sin? Christians must choose that former option. That's what we're called to. We must master our desires and emotions, not be mastered by them. Instead of blindly accepting our feelings as fact, we must refute them with truths, with truths, with the gospel that we know and believe. Again, that's what Paul is calling us here. Don't just trust yourself. Trust the word of God. Trust his promises. Trust what Christ has come and done for you. So we want to demonstrate self-control in that. That should be a trait that marks each one of our lives. But then also, secondly, I wanted to point out the theme of reverence for God and his will. There are a number of traits that I would say kind of fall into this category that are outlined in the passage. Older men are to be dignified and sound in faith. Um, We see that in verse 2. Older women are explicitly called to be reverent in verse 3. Younger women are called to be pure and to fulfill their role in their home so as to honor the word of God, as it says in verse 5. Paul says um, to have dignity and integrity in verse 7. And finally, even bondservants are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to show good faith to all in verses 9 and 10. Um, All of those examples stress our call to adore God and the things of God. And that includes the roles and responsibilities that he has given us as men and as women, as husbands and wives. God has ordained different roles for us. And so we're called to not only adore him and the things of God, but that includes those roles that he has given us. Our lives should be marked by a clear love of what is good and a rejection of what is not. We are called to desire God and disdain things that are not of him. Those who adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, they don't seek to excuse their sin or reject the roles that he has given them in their lives. 
Instead, they seek to flee from sin and, and to embrace the plans that he has for their lives. When sin in their life is brought to attention, they are thankful for the opportunity to kill it. Um, they don't just shut down to it. They don't um, get defensive about it, but they embrace that. Even if someone approaches them about their sin, they don't take rebuke, as Travis was talking last week, and just defend themselves against it and try to excuse their sin, but they are thankful for the opportunity and the love that someone has shown them to help them pursue holiness and righteousness. When sin in their life is brought to attention, they are thankful for the opportunity to kill it. And there's a joy that is experienced when sin is killed and temptation is fled from. Uh, I think one of the biggest tendencies that we can have is we might... When, when we experience conviction, when we experience temptation and we know something is wrong, we don't pursue it. We don't do it, whatever it is. If we want to lie and we choose to tell the truth in a given situation, um, we might actually do that. But one of our tendencies is we allow other sin into our heart. We can, in choosing to tell the truth, we might inwardly complain or grow discontent because we were, in a sense, forced to do the right thing. So we do the right thing, but it's, it's a very begrudging, um, a very begrudging sense of doing so. We don't actually desire to do it, we just do it outwardly. We need to recognize that that is allowing just one other kind of sin into our hearts. And so those who are reverent before God are men and women who don't complain or grow discontent when they're, when they're forced to do the right thing. They appreciate that occasion to do so. They want it to be holy and be like Jesus. They rejoice in every occasion that they have to serve and honor and reflect their God. So ask yourself, in what areas of your life is that not you? Does that reverence not demonstrate itself? What sins are you holding on to and why? I want to aim this question especially at the married couples that are here this morning. Marriage is hard. You don't have to be married to know that. And you, if you're married, you certainly don't need me to tell you that. In marriage, you are tested in ways that many of us single people aren't. And that testing is daily. It's hourly you face that testing. You and your spouse will have conflict and you will have to choose between what is the reverent response and what is the ungodly, unholy one. In the reverent response, that is where you are focused on honoring God. You don't push to have your way. You don't sin against your spouse because they sinned against you. You show humility. You listen. You seek to bless them rather than feel the need to be blessed. That's the reverent response. On the other hand, we have the unholy one in which you desire to honor yourself over God. You are the focal point, not him. So you speak harshly and you excuse sinful words. You refuse to address your, address your own problems until your spouse addresses theirs first. You act selfishly. So with those two options, the reverent response and the unholy one, what are you going to choose? And I, and I want to tell you this. Don't be so quick to answer. Just say, oh yeah, I want to do the reverent one. That's what I'm going to do next time. When I put those two options like that in those terms, it's easy to see which one is better. But is it really that easy in the moment when you're hurt when you're angry, when you're exhausted, when it's the same argument that you've had for the fifth time already, it's not that easy to choose the reverent response in that moment. So this is where, as you face that decision, which response you're going to take every day, dozens of times a day, remember Paul's commands and seek help from community. And be reminding yourself outside of those moments who God is, how beautiful he is, how much he is the treasure and delight of your soul. 
and put him before your mind so that when it does come to those moments, you want to choose him over yourself. Follow Christ. Have a reverent, God-honoring posture towards your spouse and family. Honor him over and above defending yourself. And it will transform your marriage and adorn the doctrine of our great God. So, much more could be said about the specifics of adornment, but I'm going to leave it at that. Now, I want to conclude quickly with four application points that I would say highlight each of these four points that I just went through in the sermon. So I want to just touch on application. There's, there's a lot of things that I've talked about already, and you could be coming to this point and thinking like, okay, where do I go from here? Like, what can I do with all of this information How can I live differently? How can I adorn my life? And so I wanted to give just four quick application points that are rooted in the points that I already gave, but I kind of am changing up the the order a little bit. So first, view beauty differently. Don't just delight yourself in whatever appeals to you. We live in a world that's going to tell you things are attractive when actually, in light of who God is, they're hideous. They're ugly, Don't view those things as attractive and beautiful. Don't view view beauty through the eyes of the world. View it through the eyes of faith. See beauty in holiness and righteousness and yearn for that. See beauty in God and desire to adorn your life with that kind of beauty. Second, strive hard to love God and do his will. It is not legalism to work hard. We can be legalistic as we work hard, but simply working hard is not legalism, even when we're working desperately hard to kill sin in our lives. Remember that Jesus called us, of course, he's using um, more extravagant language to communicate his point here, but remember back in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about sin, he calls us to tear out our eyes or cut off our arms to kill the sin that we're tempted with. He's calling us to take desperate steps to kill sin in our lives. So do what scripture commands you to do and repent when you are convicted of it, especially in the areas of self-control and reverence towards God like I talked about before. Love God more than you love your idols. That's how you're going to see victory over your sin. If you struggle to love him, acquaint yourself with him through his word. That's part of the reason why we have it, so that you can acquaint yourself with him and grow in fondness and love for him. Learn about who he is and what he is like, just like you do with anyone else who you're trying to get to know. As you do all of that, you will be adorning the gospel with your godliness and esteeming Christ to those around you who get to witness your life. Third, Teach and be taught. What I mean by that is seek to learn from those who are more mature than you. And also seek to teach those who are less mature than you. And don't disregard those who seek out your help and teaching. Abandon your need for privacy and open your life up to others. It's it's vulnerable and risky to do that. I know that. I've experienced that risk and vulnerability in my own life, but it's worth it to take that step. By teaching one another, we are collectively adorning the gospel and showing Christ to the world in a way that will lead others to him. And then fourth, my final application point, believe the doctrine of our Savior. The gospel transforms lives, you guys. It's transformed your lives I know that, and it will transform others. Share that gospel with the people in your life and watch a convert hearts and change lives. Pay attention to its effects in your own life and those around you so that you can be encouraged by the display of God's grace in and around you. And most importantly, never forget why we are seeking to adorn the doctrine of Christ in the first place. We do it because he has adorned us with his righteousness first. We want our lives to give testimony to what Jesus has graciously given us. When we do that, we do it for the good of ourselves and we glorify him. 
we adorn the doctrine of our God and we show how precious and good and real and true the gospel is. We show the power of it. So let's help one another adorn the doctrine of the Savior with our godliness. Would you pray with me?